Section 1 of Inquiry into Human Faculty and Its Development by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 1 Introduction Since the publication of my work on Hereditary Genius in 1869, I have written numerous memoirs, of which a list is given in an earlier page and which are scattered in various publications. They may have appeared desolatory when read in the order in which they appeared, but as they had an underlying connection it seems worthwhile to bring their substance together in logical sequence into a single volume. I have revised, condensed, largely rewritten, transposed old matter, and interpolated much that is new, but traces of the fragmentary origin of the work still remain, and I do not regret them. They serve to show that the book is intended to be suggestive and renounces all claim to be encyclopedic. I have indeed, with that object, avoided going into details in not a few cases where I should otherwise have written with fullness, especially in the anthropometric part. My general object has been to take note of the varied hereditary faculties of different men and of the great differences in different families and races, to learn how far history may have shown the predictability of supplanting inefficient human stock by better strains and to consider whether it might not be our duty to do so by such efforts as may be reasonable, thus exerting ourselves to further the ends of evolution more rapidly and with less distress than if events were left to their own course. The subject is, however, so entangled with collateral considerations that a straightforward step-by-step -step inquiry did not seem to be the most suitable course. I thought it safer to proceed like the surveyor of a new country, and endeavour to fix in the first instance as truly as I could the position of several cardinal points. The general outline of the results to which I finally arrived became more coherent and clear as this process went on. They are briefly summarised in the concluding chapter. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 Variety of Human Nature we must free our minds of a great deal of prejudice before we can rightly judge of the direction in which different races need to be improved. We must be on our guard against taking our own instincts of what is best and most seemly as a criterion for the rest of mankind. The instincts and faculties of different men and races differ in a variety of ways almost as profoundly as those of animals in different cages of the zoological gardens, and however diverse and antagonistic they are, each may be good of its kind. It is obviously so in brutes. The monkey may have a horror at the sight of a snake, and a repugnance to its ways, but a snake is just as perfect an animal as a monkey. The living world does not consist of a repetition of similar elements, but of an endless variety of them, that have grown, body and soul, through selective influences into close adaptation to their contemporaries, and to the physical circumstances of localities they inhabit. The moral and intellectual wealth of a nation largely consists in the multifarious variety of the gifts of the men who compose it, and it would be the very reverse of improvement to make all its members assimilate to a common type. However, in every race of domesticated animals, and especially in the rapidly changing race of man, there are elements, some ancestral and others the result of degradation, the result of degeneration, that are of little or no value, or are positively harmful. We may of course be mistaken about some few of these, and shall find in our fuller knowledge that they subserve the public good in some indirect manner, but notwithstanding this possibility, 
we are justified in roundly asserting that the natural characteristics of every human race admit of large improvement in many directions easy to specify i do not however offer a list of these but shall confine myself to directing attention to a very few hereditary characteristics of a marked kind some of which are most desirable and others greatly in reverse i shall also describe new methods of appraising and defining them later on in the book i shall endeavour to define the place and duty of man in the furtherance of the great scheme of evolution and i shall show that he has already not only adapted circumstances to race but also in some degree and often unconsciously race to circumstance and that his unused powers in the latter direction are more considerable than might have been thought it is with the innate moral intellectual faculties that the book is chiefly concerned but they are so closely bound up with the physical ones that these must be considered as well it is moreover convenient to take them the first so i will begin with the features end of chapter two chapter three features the differences in human features must be reckoned great inasmuch as they enable us to distinguish a single known face among those of thousands of strangers though they are mostly too minute for measurement at the same time they are exceedingly numerous the general expression of a face is the sum of a multitude of small details which are viewed in such rapid succession that we seem to perceive them all at a single glance if any one of them disagrees with the recollected traits of a known face the eye is quick at observing it and it dwells upon the difference one small discordance outweighs a multitude of similarities and suggests a general unlikeness just as a single syllable in a sentence pronounced with a foreign accent makes one cease to look upon the speaker as a countryman if the first rough sketch of a portrait be correct so far as it goes it may be pronounced an excellent likeness but a rough sketch does not go far it contains but few traits for comparison with the original it is a suggestion not a likeness it must be coloured and shaded with many touches before it can really resemble the face and whilst this is being done the maintenance of a likeness is imperilled at every step i had lately watched an able artist painting a portrait and endeavoured to estimate the number of strokes with his brush every one of which was thoughtfully and firmly given during fifteen sittings of three working hours each that is to say during forty-five hours or two thousand four hundred minutes he worked an average rate of ten strokes of the brush per minute there were therefore twenty-four thousand separate traits in the completed portrait and in his opinion some i do not say equal but comparably large number of units of resemblance with the original the physiognomical difference between different men being so numerous and small it is impossible to measure and compare them each to each and to discover by ordinary statistical methods the true physiognomy of a race the usual way is to select individuals who are judged to be representatives of the prevalent type and to photograph them but this method is not trustworthy because the judgment itself is fallacious it is swayed by exceptional and grotesque features more than by ordinary ones and the portraits supposed to be typical are likely to be caricatures one fine sunday afternoon i sat with a friend by the walk in kensington gardens that leads to the bridge and which on such occasions is thronged by promenaders it was agreed between us that whichever first caught sight of a typical john bull should call the attention of the other we sat and watched keenly for many minutes but neither has found occasion to utter a word the prevalent type of english face has greatly changed at different periods 
for after making large allowances for the fashion in portrait painting of the day there remains a great difference between the proportion in which certain casts of features are to be met with at different dates i have spent some time in studying the photographs of the various portraits of english worthies that have been exhibited at successive loan collections or which are now in the National Portrait Gallery, and have traced what appear to be the indisputable signs of one predominant type of face supplanting another. For instance, the features of the men painted by and about the time of Holbein have usually high cheekbones, long upper lips, thin eyebrows, and lank dark hair. It would be impossible, I think, for the majority of modern English men so to dress themselves and clip and arrange their hair as to look like the majority of these portraits. Englishmen are now a fair and British race, as may be seen from the diagram taken from the report of the Anthropometric Committee to the British Association in 1880, and which gives a proportion in which the various colours of hair are found among our professional classes. The diagrams displayed on the page with a list of albino, very fair, fair, light brown, brown, dark brown, black brown, black, red brown, dark red, red, and golden light red i take the professional classes because they correspond with the class of english worthies better than any of the others from which returns have been collected the diagram however gives a fair representation of other classes of the community for instance i have analysed the official records of the very carefully selected crews of the hms alert and discovery in the arctic expedition of eighteen seventy five six and find the proportion of various shades of hair to be the same among them as is shown in the diagram Seven-tenths of the crews have complexions described as light, fair, fresh, ruddy or freckled, and the same proportion had blue or grey eyes. They would have contrasted strongly with Cromwell's regiment of Ironsides, who were recruited from the dark-haired men of the Fen districts, and who are said to have left the impression on contemporary observers as being men of a particular breed. They would also probably have contrasted with any body of thorough-going Puritan soldiers taken at haphazard, for there is prevalence of dark hair among men of a trabilious and sour temperament. If we may believe caricaturists, the fleshness and obesity of many Englishmen and women in the earlier years of this century must have been prodigious. It testifies to the great conditions of life in those days, and makes it improbable that the types best adapted to prevail then would be the best adapted to prevail now. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 Composite Portraiture as a means of getting over the difficulty of procuring really representative faces, I contrived the method of composite portraiture, which has been explained of late on many occasions, and of which a full account will be found in Appendix A. The principle on which the composites are made will best be understood by a description of my earlier and now discarded method. It was this. 1. The collected photographic portraits of different persons, all of whom had been photographed in the same aspect, say full face, and under the same conditions of light and shade, save with the light coming from the right side. 2. I reduced their portraits photographically to the same size, being guided as to scale by the distance between any two convenient points of reference in the features. For example, by the vertical distance between two parallel lines, one of which passed through the middle of the pupils of the eyes and the other between the lips. 3. I superimposed the portraits like the successive leaves of a book so that the features of each portrait lay as exactly as the case admitted, in front of those of the one behind it, eye in front of eye and mouth in front of mouth. 
This I did by holding them successfully to the light and adjusting them, then by fastening each to the preceding one by a strip of gummed paper along one of the edges. Thus I obtained a book, each page of which contained a separate portrait, and all the portraits lay exactly in front of one another. 4. Fasten the book against the wall in such a way that I could turn over the pages in succession, leaving in turn each portrait flat and fully exposed. 5. I focused my camera on the book, fixed it firmly, and put a sensitive plate inside it. 6. I began photographing, taking one page after the other in succession without moving the camera, but putting on the cap whilst I was turning over the pages so that an image of each of the portraits in succession was thrown on the same part of the sensitive plate. Only a fraction of the exposure required to make a good picture was allowed to each portrait. Suppose that period was 20 seconds, and that there were 10 portraits. Then exposure of 2 seconds would be allowed for each portrait, making 20 seconds normal. This is the principle of the process. The details of that which I now use are different and complex. They are fully explained in the appendix for the use of those who may care to know about them. The effect of composite portraiture is to bring into evidence all the traits in which there is agreement, and to leave but a ghost of a trace of individual peculiarities. There are so many traits in common in all faces that the composite picture, when made from many components, is far from being a blur. It has altogether the look of an ideal composition. It may be worth mentioning that when I take any small bundle of portraits selected by hazard, I have generally found it easy to sort them into five groups four of which have enough resemblance among them to make as many fairly clear composites, while the fifth consists of faces that are too incongruous to be grouped into a single class. In dealing with portraits of brothers and sisters, I can generally throw most of them into a single group with success. In the small collection of composites given in the plate facing page 8, I have purposely selected many of them that I have previously published, and whose originals, on a larger scale, I have at various times exhibited together with their components in order to put the genuineness of the results beyond doubt. Those who see them for the first time can hardly believe that one dominant face has overpowered the rest, and that they are composites only in name. When, however, the details are examined, this objection disappears. It is true that with careless photography one face may be allowed to dominate, but with the care that ought to be taken and with the pleasures described in the appendix that does not occur. I have often been amused when showing composites and their components to friends to hear a strong expression of opinion that the predominance of one face was evidence, and then on asking which face it was to discover that they disagreed. I have even known a composite in which one portrait seemed unduly to prevail, to be remade without the component in question, and the results to be much the same as before, showing that the reason of the resemblance was that the rejected portrait had a close approximation to the ideal average picture of the rest. These small composites give a better notion of the utmost capacity of the process than the larger ones from which they are reduced. In the latter, the ghosts of individual peculiarities are more visible, and usually the equal traces left by every member of a moderately-sized group can be made out by careful inspection. But it is hardly possible to do this in the pictures in the plate, except in a good light and in a very few of the cases. On the other hand, the larger pictures do not contain more detail of value than the smaller ones. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 Description of the Composites 
The medallion of Alexander the Great was made by combining the images of six different medals, with the view of obtaining the type of features that the makers of those medals concurred in desiring to ascribe to him. The originals were kindly selected for me by Mr. R. Stuart Poole from the collection in the British Museum. This composite was one of the first I ever made, and is printed together with its six components in the Journal of the Royal Institution in illustration of a lecture I gave there in April 1879. It seems to me that it is possible on this principle to obtain a truer likeness of a man than in any other way. Every artist makes mistakes, but by combining the conscientious work of many artists, their separate mistakes disappear, and what is common to all their works remains. So as regards different photographs of the same person, whose accidental momentary expressions are got rid of, which an ordinary photograph made by a brief exposure cannot help recording. On the other hand, any happy sudden trait of expression is lost. The composite gives the features in repose. The next pair of composites, full face and profile on a plate, has not been published before. The interest of the pair lies chiefly in their having been made from only two components, and they show how curiously even two faces that have a moderate family likeness will blend into a single one. That neither of these predominated in the present case will be learned from the following letter by the father of the ladies, who is himself a photographer. I am exceedingly obliged for the very curious and interesting composite portraits of my two children. Knowing the faces so well, it caused me quite a surprise when I opened your letter. I put one of the four faces on the table for the mother to pick up casually. She said, When did you do this portrait of A? How like she's to B, or is it B? I never thought they were so like before. It has puzzled several people to say whether the profile was intended for A or B. Then I tried one of them on a friend who has not seen the girls for years. He said, Well, it is one of the family for certain, but I don't know which. The table is displayed on the previous page titled Specimens of Composite Portraiture, divided into three sections, the personal and family, health, disease, criminality, consumption and other maladies. I have made several other family portraits, which to my eye seem great successes, but must candidly own that the persons whose portraits are blended together seldom seem to care much for the result, except as a curiosity. We are all inclined to assert our individuality, and to stand on our own basis, and to object to being mixed up indiscriminately with others. The same feeling finds expressions when the resident in a suburban street insists on calling his house a villa with some fantastic name, and refuses so long as he can to call it simply number so-and-so in the street. The last picture in the upper row shows the easy way in which young and old, male and female, combine to form an effective picture. The components consist, in this case, of the father and mother, two sons and two daughters. I exhibited the original of this, together with the portraits from which it was taken, at the Lone Photographic Exhibition at the Society of Arts in February 1882. I also sent copies of the original of this same composite to several amateur photographers with a circular letter asking them to get from me family groups for the purpose of experiments, and to see how far the process was suitable for family portraiture. The middle row of portraits illustrates health, disease, and criminality. For health, I have obtained the portraits of twelve officers of the Royal Engineers, with about an equal number of privates, which were taken for me by Lieutenant Darwin R.E. The individuals from whom this composite was made, which has not come out as clearly as I should have liked, differed considerably in feature, 
and they came from various parts of England. The points they had in common were the bodily and mental qualifications required for admission into select corps, and their generally British descent. The result is a composite having an expression of considerable vigour, resolution, intelligence and frankness. I have exhibited both this and others that were made respectfully from the officers from the whole collection of privates, 36 in number, and from that selected portion of them that is utilised in the present instance. This face and the qualities it connotes probably gives a clue to the direction in which the stock of the English race might most easily be improved. It is the essential notion of a race that there should be some ideal typical form from which the individuals may deviate in all directions, but about which they chiefly cluster, and towards which their descendants will continue to cluster. The easiest direction in which a race can be improved is towards that central type, because nothing new has to be sought out. It is only necessary to encourage, as far as practical, the breed of those who conform most nearly to the central type, and restrain as far as may be the breed of those who deviate widely from it. Now there can hardly be a more appropriate method of discovering the central physiognomical type of any race or group than that of composite portraiture. As a contrast to the composite of the royal engineers, I give those of two of the coarse and low types of face found among the criminal cases. The photographs on which they were made are taken from two large groups. One of those are men undergoing severe sentences for murder and other crimes connected with violence, the other of thieves. They were reprints from those taken by order of the prison authorities for purposes of identification. I was allowed to obtain copies for use in my inquiries by the kind permission of Sir Edmund Duquesne, H.M. Director of Prisons. The originals of these and their components have frequently been exhibited. It is unhappily a fact that fairly distinct types of criminals breeding true to their kind have been established, and are one of the saddest disfigurements of modern civilization. To this subject I shall recur. I have made numerous composites of various groups of convicts, which are interesting, negatively rather than positively. They produce faces of a mean description, with no villainy written on them. The individual faces are villainous enough, but they are villainous in different ways and when they are combined, the individual peculiarities disappear, and the common humanity of a low type is all that is left. The remaining portraits are illustrations of the application of the process to the study of the physiognomy of disease. They were published a year ago, with many others, together with several of the portraits from which they were derived. In a joint memoir by Dr. Mahood and myself, in volume 25 of the Guy's Hospital Reports, the originals and all the components have been exhibited on several occasions. In the lower division of the plate will be found three composites, each made from a large number of faces, unselected except on the ground of the disease under which they were suffering. When only few portraits are used, there must be some moderate resemblance between them, or the result will be blurred. But here, dealing with as many as 56, 150 cases respectively, the combination of any medley group results in an ideal expression. It will be observed that the composite of 56 female faces is made by the blending of two other composites, both of which are given. The history was this. I took the 56 portraits and sorted them into two groups. In the first of these were 20 portraits that showed a tendency to thin features. In the other group there were 36 that showed a tendency to thickened features. I made the composites of each of them as shown in the plate. Now it will be remarked that notwithstanding the attempt to make two contrasting groups, the number of mediocre cases were so great that the composites of the two groups are much alike. 
If I had divided 56 into two haphazard groups, the results would have been closely alike, as I know from abundant experience of the kind. The co-composite of the two will be observed to have an intermediate expression. The test and measure of statistical truth lies in the degree of accordance between results obtained from different batches of instances of the same generic class. It will be gathered from these instances that composite portraiture may attain statistical constancy within limits not easily distinguished by the eye after some thirty haphazard portraits of the same class have been combined. This, at least, has been my experience thus far. The two faces illustrative of the same type of tubercular disease are very striking. The uppermost is photographically interesting as a case of predominance of one peculiarity. Happily, of no harm to the effect of the ideal wan face. It is that one of the patients had a sharply checked black and white scarf, whose pattern has asserted itself unduly in the composite. In such cases, I ought to throw the too clearly defined picture a little out of focus. The way in which the varying brightness of different pictures is reduced to a uniform standard of illumination described in the appendix. It must be clearly understood that these ports do not profess to give the whole story of the physiognomy of phthesis. I have not room to give illustrations of other types, namely that with coarse and blunted features, or the strumous one, nor any of the intermediates. These have been discussed chiefly by Dr. Malhond in the memoir alluded to above. In the large experience I have had of sorting photographs, literally by the thousand, while making experiments with composites, I have been struck by certain general impressions. The consumptive patients consisted of many hundred cases, including a considerable proportion of very ignoble specimens of humanity. Some were scrofulous and misshapen, or suffered from various loathsome forms of inherited disease. Most were ill-nourished. Nevertheless, in studying their portraits, the pathetic interest prevailed and I returned day after day to my tedious work of classification with a liking for my materials. It was quite otherwise with the criminals. I did not adequately appreciate the degradation of their expressions for some time. At last the sense of it took firm hold of me, and I cannot now handle the portraits without overcoming by an effort to the aversion they suggest. I am sure that the method of composite portraiture opens a fertile field of research to ethnologists but I find it very difficult to do much single-handed on account of the difficulty of obtaining the necessary materials. As a rule, the individuals must be specially photographed. The portraits made by artists are taken in every conceivable aspect and variety of light and shade, but for the purpose in question, the aspect in the shade must be the same throughout. Group portraits would do the work from, were it not for the strong out-of-door light under which they are necessarily taken, which gives an unwanton effect to the expression of the faces. Their scale also is too small to give a sufficiently clear picture when enlarged. I may say that the scale of the portraits need to be uniform, as my apparatus enlarges or reduces as required, at the same time that it superposes the images, but the portraits of the heads should never be less than twice the size of that of the queen on a half-penny piece. I heartily wish that amateur photographers would seriously take up the subject of composite portraiture as applied to different subtypes of the varying races of men. I have already given more time to perfecting the process and experimenting with it than I can well spare. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 Bodily Qualities the differences in the bodily qualities that are the usual subjects of anthropometry are easily dealt with 
and are becoming widely registered in many countries. We are unfortunately destitute of trustworthy measurements of Englishmen of past generations to enable us to compare class with class, and to learn how far the several sections of the English nation may be improving or deteriorating. We shall, however, hand useful information concerning our own times to our successors, thanks principally to the exertions of the Anthropometric Committee established five years ago by the British Association, who have collected and partially classified and published a large amount of facts, besides having induced several institutions, such as Marlborough College, to undertake a regular system of anthropometric record. I am not, however, concerned here with the labours of this committee, nor with the separate valuable publications of some of its members, otherwise than in one small particular which appears to show that the English population as a whole, or perhaps I should say the urban portion of it, is in some sense deteriorating. It is that the average stature of the older persons measured by or for the committee have not been found to decrease steadily with their age, but sometimes in reverse. This contradicts observations made on the heights of the same men at different periods, whose stature, after middle age, is invariably reduced by the shrinking of the cartilages. The explanation offered was that the statistical increase of stature with age should be ascribed to the survival of the more stalwart. On reconsideration, I am inclined to doubt the adequacy of the explanation, and partially to account for the fact, by a steady, slight deterioration of stature in successive years in the urban population, owing to the conditions of their lives, and in the rural population, owing to continual draining away of the more stalwart of them to the towns. It cannot be doubted that town life is harmful to the town population. I have myself investigated its effect on fertility, see Appendix B, and found that taking on the one hand a number of rural parishes, and on the other hand the inhabitants of a medium town, the former reared nearly twice as many adult grandchildren as the latter. The vital functions are so closely related that an inferiority in the production of healthy children very probably implies a loss of vigour generally, one sign of which is a diminution of stature. Though the bulk of the population may deteriorate, there are many signs that the better housed and fed portion of it improves. In the earlier years of this century, the so-called manly sports of boxing and other feats of strength ranked high among the national amusements. A man who was successful in these became the hero of a large and demonstrative circle of admirers, and it is to be presumed that the best boxer, the best pedestrian, and so forth, was the best adapted to succeed through his natural physical gifts. If he was not the most gifted man in those respects in the whole kingdom, he was certainly one of the most gifted of them. It therefore does no injustice to the men of that generation to compare the feats of their foremost athletes with those of ours who occupy themselves in the same way. The comparison would probably err in their favour, because the interests in the particular feats in which our grandfathers and great-grandfathers delighted are not these that chiefly interest the present generation, and notwithstanding our increased population, there are fewer men now who attempt them. In the beginning of this century, there were many famous walking matches, and incomparably the best walker was Captain Barclay of Uri. His paramount feat, which was once very familiar to the elderly men of the present time, was that of walking a thousand miles in a thousand hours. But of late years, that feat has been frequently equaled and overpassed. I am willing to allow much influence to the modern conditions of walking under shelter and subject to improved methods of training. Captain Barclay himself originated the first method which has been greatly improved since his time. 
Still, the fact remains that in executing this particular feat, the athletes of the present day are more successful than those who lived some 80 years ago. I may be permitted to give an example bearing on the increased stature of the better housed and fed portion of the nation. In a recollection of my own as to the difference in height between myself and my fellow collegians at Trinity College, Cambridge, in 1840-4, my height is 5 feet 91 inches, and I, and I recollect perfectly that among the crowd of undergraduates I stood somewhat taller than the majority. I generally looked a little downward when I met their eyes. In later years, whenever I have visited Cambridge, I have lingered in the Ant Chapel and repeated the comparison. Now I find myself decidedly shorter than the average of the students. I have precisely the same kind of recollection, and the same present experience of the height of crowds of well-dressed persons. I used always to get a fair view of what was going on over or between their heads. I rarely can do so now. The athletic achievements at school and college are much superior to what they used to be. Part is no doubt due to the skilful methods of execution, but not all. I cannot doubt that the more wholesome and abundant food, the moderation in drink, the better cooking, the warmer wearing apparel, the airier sleeping rooms, the greater cleanliness, the more complete change in holidays, and the healthier lives led by the women in their girlhood, who become mothers afterwards, have a great influence for good on the favoured portion of our race. The proportion of weakly misshapen individuals is not to be estimated by those whom we meet in the streets. The worst cases are out of sight. We should parade before our mind's eye the inmates of the lunatic, idiot and pauper asylums, the prisoners, the patients in hospitals, the sufferers at home, the crippled and the congenitally blind, and the large class of more or less wealthy persons who flee to the sunnier coasts of England or expatriate themselves for the chance of life. There can hardly be a sadder sight than the crowd of delicate Englishmen and women with narrow chests and weak chins, scrofulous and otherwise gravely affected, who are to be found in some of these places. Even this does not tell the whole of the story. If there were a conscription in England, we should find, as in other countries, that a large fraction of the men who earn their living by sedentary occupations are unfit for military service. Our human civilized stock is far more weakly through congenial imperfection than that of any other species of animals, whether wild or domestic. It is, however, by no means the most shapely or our biggest personages who endure hardship the best. Some very shabby-looking men have extraordinary stamina. Sickly-looking and puny residents in towns may have a more suitable constitution for the special conditions of their lives, and may, in some sense, be better knit to do more work and live longer than much older men imported to the same locality from elsewhere. A wheel and barrel system to have the flimsiest possible constitutions, they consist of numerous separate pieces all oddly shaped, which, when lying in a heap, look hopelessly unfitted for union, but put them properly together, compress them with a tire in one case and with hoops in the other, and a remarkably enduring organisation will result. A wheel with a ton on the top of it in the wagons of South Africa will jolt for thousands of miles over stony, roadless country without suffering harm. A keg of water may be strapped on the back of a pack ox or a mule and be kicked off and trampled on and be otherwise misused for years without giving way. I do not propose to enter further into the anthropometric differences of race, but the subject is a very large one, and this book does not profess to go into detail. Its intention is to touch on various topics more or less connected with that of the cultivation of race, or as we might call it, with eugenic questions, and to present the results of several of my own separate investigations. End of chapter 6
Chapter 7. Energy. Energy is a capacity for labor. It is consistent with all the robust virtues and makes a large practice of them possible. It is a measure of fullness of life. The more energy, the more abundance of it. No energy at all is death. Idiots are feeble and listless. In the inquiries I made on the antecedents of men of science, no points came out more strongly than that the leaders of scientific thought were generally gifted with remarkable energy, and that they had inherited the gift of it from their parents and grandparents. I have since found the same to be the case in other careers. Energy is an attribute of the higher races, being favoured beyond all other qualities by natural selection. We are goaded into activity by the conditions and struggles of life. Therefore, it stimuli that oppress and worry the weakly, who complain and bewail, and it may be succumbed to them, but which the energetic man welcomes the good-humoured shrug, and is the better for it in the end. The stimuli may be of any description. The only important matter is that all the faculties should be kept working to prevent their perishing by disuse. If the faculties are few, very simple stimuli will suffice. Even that of fleas will go a long way. A dog is continually scratching himself, and a bird pluming himself whenever they are not occupied with food, hunting, fighting, or love. In those blank times, there is very little for them to attend to besides their varied contaminous irritations. It is a matter of observation that well-washed and combed domestic pets grow dull. They miss the stimulus of fleas. If animals did not prosper through the agency of their insect plagues, it seems probable that their races would long since have been so modified that their bodies should have ceased to afford a pasture ground for parasites. It does not seem to follow that because men are capable of doing hard work, they like it. Some indeed fidget and fret if they cannot otherwise work off their superfluous steam, but on the other hand there are many big lazy fellows who will not get up their steam to full pressure except under compulsion. Again, the character of the stimulus that induces hard work differs greatly in different persons, and may be wealth, ambition, or other objects of passion. The solitary hard workers, under no encouragement or compulsion except their sense of duty to their generation, are unfortunately still rare among us. It may be objected that if the race were too healthy and energetic, there would be insufficient call for the exercise of the pitying and self-denying virtues, and the character of men would grow harder in consequence. But it does not seem reasonable to preserve sickly breeds for the sole purpose of tending them, as the breed of foxes is preserved solely for sport and its attendant advantages. There is little fear that misery will ever cease from the land, or that the compassionate will fail to find objects for their compassion. But at present the supply vastly exceeds demand. The land is overstocked and overburdened with the listless and the incapable. In any scheme of eugenics, energy is the most important quality to favour. It is, as we have seen, the basis of living action, and it is eminently transmissible by descent. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8. Sensitivity The only information that reaches us concerning outward events appears to pass through the avenue of our senses, and the more perceptive the senses are of difference, the larger is the field upon which our judgment and intelligence can act. Sensation mounts through a series of grades of just perceptible differences. It starts from the zero of consciousness, and it becomes more intense as the stimulus increases, though at a slower rate up to the point when the stimulus is so strong as to begin to damage the nerve apparatus. Then it yields place to pain, which is another form of sensation, and which continues until the nerve apparatus is destroyed. Two persons may be equally able just to hear the same faint sound, 
and they may equally begin to be pained by the same loud sound and yet they may differ as to the number of intermediate grades of sensation the grades will be less numerous as the organization is of a lower order and the keenest sensation possible to it will in consequence be less intense an artist who incapable of discriminating more differences of tint than another man is not necessarily more capable of seeing clearly in twilight or more or less intolerant of sunshine a musician is not necessarily able to hear very faint sounds nor to be more startled by loud sounds than others are a mechanic who works hard with heavy tools and has rough and grimy thumbs insensible to very slight pressures may yet have a singularly discriminating power of touch in respect to the pressures that he can feel the discriminative faculty of idiots is curiously low they hardly distinguish between heat and cold and their sense of pain is so obtuse that some of the more idiotic seem hardly to know what it is in their dull lives such pain as can be excited in them may literally be acceptable with a welcome surprise during a visit to earlswood asylum i saw two boys whose toenails had grown into the flesh and had been excised by the surgeon this is a horrible torture to ordinary persons but the idiot lads were said to have shown no distress during the operation it was not necessary to hold them and they looked rather interested at what was being done i also saw a boy with the scar of a severe wound on his wrist the story being that he had first burned himself slightly by accident and liking the keenness of the new sensation he took the next opportunity of repeating the exercise but idiot-like he overdid it the trials i have as yet made on the sensitivity of different persons confirms the reasonable expectation that it would on the whole be highest among the intellectually ablest at first owing to my confusion the quality of which i am speaking with that of nervous irritability i fancied that women of delicate nerves who were distressed by noise sunshine etc would have acute powers of discrimination but this i found not to be the case in morbidly sensitive persons both pain and sensation are induced by lower stimuli than in the healthy but the number of just perceptible grades of sensation between them is not necessarily different i found as a rule that men have more delicate powers of discrimination than women and the business experience of life seems to confirm this view the tuners of pianofortes are men and so i understand are the tasters of tea and wine the sorters of wool and the like these latter occupations are well salaried because it is of the first moment to the merchant that he should be rightly advised on the real value of what he is about to purchase or to sell if the sensitivity of women were superior to that of men the self-interest of merchants would lead to their being always employed but as the reverse is the case the opposite supposition is likely to be the true one ladies rarely distinguish the merits of wine at the dinner-table and though custom allows them to preside at the breakfast-table men think them on the whole to be far from successful makers of tea and coffee blind persons are reputed to have acquired in compensation for the loss of their eyesight an increased acuteness in their other senses i was therefore curious to make some trials with my test apparatus which i will describe in the next chapter i was permitted to do so on a number of boys at a large educational blind asylum but found that although they were anxious to do their best their performances were by no means superior to those of other boys it so happened that the blind lads who showed the most delicacy of touch and won the little prizes i offered to excite emulation barely reached the mediocrity of the various sighted lads of the same age whom i had previously tested i have made not a few observations and inquiries and find that the guidance of the blind depends mainly on the multitude of collateral indications to which they give much heed 
and not to their superior sensitivity to any one of them. Those who see do not care for so many of these collateral indications, and habitually overlook and neglect several of them. I am convinced, also, that a little of the popular belief concerning the sensitivity of the blind is due to exaggerated claims on their part that have not been verified. Two instances of this have fallen within my own experience, in both of which the blind persons claim to have the power of judging by the echo of their voice and by certain other feelings. The one when they were approaching objects, even though the feelings were so small as a handrail, and the other to tell how far the door of the room in which he was standing was open. I used all the persuasion I could to induce each of these persons to allow me to put their assertions to the test, but it was of no use. The one made excuses, the other positively refused. They had probably the same tendency that others would have who happened to be defective in any faculty that their comrades possessed, to fight bravely against their disadvantage, at the same time to be betrayed into some over-vaunting of their capacities in other directions. They would be a little conscious of this, and would therefore shirk from being tested. The power of reading by touch is not so very wonderful. A former Lord Chancellor of England, the late Lord Hatherley, when he was advanced in years, lost his eyesight for some time owing to a cataract, which was not ripe to be operated on. He assured me that he had then learned and practiced reading by touch very rapidly. This fact may perhaps also serve as additional evidence of the sensitivity of able men. Notwithstanding many travellers' tales, I have thus far been unsuccessful in obtaining satisfactory evidence of any general large superiority of the senses of savages over those of civilised men. My own experience, so far as it goes, of Hottentots, Damaras, and some other wild races, went to show that their sense discrimination was not superior to those of white men, even as regards keenness of eyesight. An off-hand observer is apt to err by assigning to a single cause what is partially due to others as well. Thus, as regards our sight, a savage who is accustomed to watch oxen grazing at a distance becomes so familiar with their appearance and habits that he can identify particular animals and draw conclusions as to what they are doing with an accuracy that may seem to strangers to be wholly dependent on exceptional acuteness of vision. A sailor has the reputation of keen sight because he sees a distant coast when a landsman cannot make it out. The fact being that a landsman usually expects a different appearance to what he is really to look for such as a very minute and sharp outline instead of a large, faint blur. In a short time, a landsman becomes quite as quick as a sailor, and in some test experiments he was found on the average to be distinctly the superior. It is not surprising that this should be so, as sailors and vessels of moderate size have hardly ever the practice of focusing their eyes sharply upon objects farther off than the length of the vessel or the top of the mast, say, at a distance of fifty paces. The horizon itself, as seen from the deck, and under the most favourable circumstances is barely four miles off, and there is no sharpness of outline in the intervening waves. Besides this, the life of a sailor is very unhealthy, as shown by his growing old prematurely, and his eyes must be much tried by foul weather and salt spray. We inherit our language from barbarous ancestors, and it shows traces of its origin in the imperfect ways by which grades of difference admit of being expressed. Suppose a pedestrian is asked whether the knapsack on his back feels heavy. He cannot find a reply in two words that cover more varieties than 1. Very heavy, 2. Rather heavy, 3. Moderate, 4. Rather light, 5. Very light. I once took considerable pains in the attempt to draw up verbal scales of more than five orders of magnitude using those expressions, only that every cultivated person would understand in the same sense, but I did not succeed. 
a series that satisfied one person was not interpreted in the same sense by another the general intention of this chapter has been to show that a delicate power of sense discrimination is an attribute of a high race and that it has not the drawback of being necessarily associated with nervous irritability end of chapter eight and end of section one